Corporation Commissioner Andy Tobin was supposed to simply fill out the one year that was left in Susan Bittersmith's term when she resigned, but that's not going to be the case. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about Tobin's decision to run for a full term, even after controversy emerged over possible conflicts of interest. Also, Arizona's biosciences sector continues to grow, but with the industry more than a decade old here, what will the state do to be competitive through 2025? Plus, just about one year ago, the Arizona Republic dramatically changed its food and dining section as longtime critic Howard Seftel retired. I'll check in with Dominic Armato, who succeeded Seftel, to find out what has surprised and intrigued him about the Valley restaurant scene. And legendary trumpet player Herb Alpert first started making hits in the 1960s with the Tijuana Brass. We'll talk about his long and successful career. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, we'll get an update on how Arizona's biosciences industry is doing. Arizona Republic dining critic Dominic Armato talks about his first year on the job, including how much food he's been eating. Legendary trumpet player Herb Alpert, who's been a hit-making musician for more than 50 years, will tell me about his long and successful career. He'll be performing in the Valley on Sunday. We start today's program with Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton, who was outspoken after last week's election night controversy. The mayor has written a letter to the Department of Justice to ask for an investigation into what went on. And he joins me now. Mayor, in particular this morning in the Arizona Republic, you took some criticism for contacting the Department of Justice. What do you think the DOJ can do? What do you want them to do? People are outraged for very, very good reasons. Uh, Is there anything more important than protecting the sanctity of the right to vote? And when election officials here locally didn't do that, they were cavalier about that uh, and put together a system that almost systematically denied people the right to vote because so many people, tens of thousands of people, they can't wait five hours in a day to uh, to vote. Imagine a single mother with two kids. Uh, She can't wait five hours in line to vote. Imagine someone with a disability that can't stand that long. No accommodation Uh, was made for people with disabilities. For reason after reason, uh, it's appropriate that uh, the Department of Justice come in, look at our system, and make recommendations on how we can meet the the requirements of the Voting Rights Act for future elections. It's very, very important that we get this right. So regardless of what an investigation may entail, do you personally think there was incompetence or an intentional effort? Certainly there was uh, incompetence. It was simply unacceptable of what occurred. Was it intentional from a Voting Rights Act perspective, it doesn't matter. The issue is, did the effect of what occurred have a disproportionate impact on people with disabilities or Latinos or African Americans in our uh, communities? Did the lack of voting sites in Phoenix, which is a majority-minority city, mean that the impact of those terrible decisions had a disproportionate impact on those communities? So I know the question of intent is an interesting one, But from a legal perspective, it actually doesn't matter. It's whether it had a disproportionate impact, a discriminatory impact on those populations. That's what I'm concerned about because we want to protect everyone's voting rights. Now, some are blaming the issues on the state legislature cutting back on funds that the county receives. And it also, to me, that begs the question about this bigger battle we may be seeing. Even the idea of you talking or or sending a letter to the Department of Justice, this feeling that the cities simply cannot get along with the state legislature. There's too much of a disconnect there. Are you feeling that on a regular basis? Well, I don't think it's a matter of whether we get along uh, or not. It's just 
there, there seems to be such a massive difference uh, in our in our priorities. Let me uh, I mean let me give you an example. Uh, in addition to the horrific decisions that led to uh, what I believe is voter suppression here in Maricopa uh, County. Uh, I mean, just how many people had to get out of that line and weren't able to exercise their right to vote uh, because of these horrific uh, decisions. But in addition, you've got to look at things like um, the, the number of provisional ballots that are tossed out. We have one of the highest rates in the country of provisional ballots being turned out. Well, people aren't less eligible to vote here uh, in Arizona or in Maricopa County, uh, that's a decision of election officials. And we got to question why those decisions lead to so many additional ballots being kicked out here. Uh, obviously, I very much oppose recent legislative efforts uh, that were aimed at trying to, uh, that, that attempts to increase the, the, the right to vote. Legislative efforts went in the opposite uh, direction, uh, particularly ways that would hurt the abilities of Latino families to more actively participate in our election. So uh, you look at the big picture, and I think we're heading in the wrong direction when it comes to uh, issues that relate to voting rights and efforts to increase access to the ballot. I think we should be increasing access to the ballot, not going in the other direction. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with the mayor of Phoenix, Greg Stanton, for just a couple of more minutes. Mayor, the Diamondbacks surprised a lot of people by expressing their dissatisfaction with Chase Field, even making noise about possibly wanting to move. Now, the Suns would also like a new place to play. How much does downtown Phoenix in particular need those facilities to bring fans downtown? Well, look, uh, we love having the Diamondbacks in downtown Phoenix. Uh, They are our world champion Arizona Diamondbacks. And we hope to have many, many more World Series championships hoisted on the field uh, in, in downtown Phoenix. Obviously, there's an ongoing dispute between the Diamondbacks and Maricopa County. I won't comment on that dispute because the city of Phoenix is not a party uh, to that dispute. I really, really hope that the two sides do work it out because the Diamondbacks are very important uh, to Phoenix, very important to downtown uh, Phoenix. Those 81 games that they bring to downtown Phoenix are really important. Plus, we want to use that stadium even more on non-baseball game nights for big events, big concerts, et cetera, to generate life and vibrancy and excitement in, in downtown. So for a lot of different reasons, it's important that that's, that team and stadium stay in downtown Phoenix. And, Mayor, finally, I'm not privy to negotiations behind the scenes, but I'd mentioned the Suns as well. The Coyotes are looking for a new place to play also. How important is it for those three organizations to be in Phoenix whether they're in downtown Phoenix or not, they should be in Phoenix proper as opposed to other cities in the Valley. Well, look, I want each of those organizations to make their best choice about where they uh, should be. I happen to think that downtown Phoenix is the best location for so many for so many reasons. Obviously, from a fan perspective, there is nothing better than attending the game in downtown Phoenix in terms of uh, the offerings around the stadium, uh, not just in terms of restaurants and bars, but in terms of art galleries and fun events and activities and the ability to do value-added type events when big activities uh, uh, occur there, not just on game nights, but again on non-game nights. I mean, we want concerts and other family-friendly events that occur uh, inside that arena to have a great experience from the moment you get out of your car or off that light rail to the moment you step foot back at your home. We want the total experience to be second to none, and only downtown Phoenix can provide that experience second uh, to none. We're really good at providing uh, those experiences, on creating those uh, those experiences, 
And so obviously the Suns and, and Phoenix have we've been partners for decades. It's been a wonderful, wonderful relationship. When the Suns win an NBA championship, and they will, <laughs> I want to make sure that that NBA championship trophy is hoisted uh, in downtown Phoenix. When a Stanley Cup comes to the desert, and it will, when our Arizona Coyotes win the Stanley Cup, it's a really wonderful uh, organization. We want that to occur here in our community. I don't want them hoisting that cup in Las Vegas or some other location with the Coyotes franchise. They belong in our uh, in our community. And if downtown Phoenix is the right location for that team, uh, and I think it is, uh, then, that, then that obviously should occur in the heart of our city. Greg Stanton is the mayor of Phoenix. Mayor, thanks for the time. Anytime. I'd love to be on. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Appointed Corporation Commissioner Andy Tobin joined the panel to finish the final year of Susan Bittersmith's term. Bittersmith resigned following a series of conflict of interest allegations. Tobin has also faced potential conflict of interest issues of his own, and it said he wouldn't run for a full commission term. That, though, has changed, and I turn to former legislative leader and political analyst Chris Hurstam for his perspectives. So, Chris, are you surprised Tobin is going to make a full run after saying he would not? No, not really, Steve. Um, He wouldn't have left uh, a higher-paying state agency directorship uh, to serve uh, less than a year in a lower-paying position at the Corporation Commission unless he really planned to make it uh, long-term. So I'm not surprised that he's going to run. That doesn't sound extremely trustworthy on his part. Um, Why even say it publicly, then? Hey, I, I, you know, I, there's no way I can answer that question. <laughs> All I've got to say is, is what kind of vetting job did the governor's office do? I mean, they supposedly knew Andy Tobin very well. They had appointed him to uh, a state directorship at the insurance department, and then they were folding in the financial old banking department into that position. Um, they knew this guy very well, former Speaker of the House. How could they not have known that he had a conflict of interest uh, with regards to uh, his relatives that worked for Solar City and that also worked for uh, Cox? Um, the very same type of thing that, that made the vacancy available when Susan Bittersmith was removed. I mean, what kind of vetting went on there? It, it, obviously not much. Um, so part of the responsibility goes to the governor's office. Uh, and, and then his own, Tobin's own in-house attorney has told him that he's non-appointable and non-electable to the a, to the Corporation Commission because of his complex. But that wasn't enough to dissuade him. What did Tobin do? He went down to his buddies at the legislature and got them to uh, introduce a bill that will basically weaken the conflict of interest requirements that would allow him to vote on, on utility matters that uh, happen to be connected to companies that his, his relatives work for. Um, and that bill's going through the process, uh, and, and he went down and testified for it, which was a conflict of interest in itself to testify for the legislation that would weaken his conflict of interest requirements. This is bizarre, and I guess you could say only in Arizona, but it's really pretty sad. So considering what we've learned then and considering what you said, did Governor Ducey, whether Tobin was well-vetted or not, was it a mistake to appoint Tobin? Would it have been a better situation to appoint someone who clearly really would have just served one year? 
Absolutely. Uh, the governor's office was urged by many um, to appoint uh, maybe a retired judge or someone that had um, a judicial background or a financial background and would agree not to run for the office so that they could just serve out the Susan Bittersmith uh, term and then let people run, you know, let the politicians go for it um, in, in 2016. But um, they didn't go that route. They went with their their uh, their their friend Andy Tobin. That it, I'm sure they thought he would do a fine job, but obviously they didn't vet him um, because uh, he's got the same type of conflicts that Susan Bitter Smith had. So um, we're sort of operating in the land of the clueless. Uh, with regards to the Corporation Commission at this point. Uh, and, you know, uh, at the same time, we we watched late yesterday Senate Bill 1516 uh, that expands dark money, um, dark money that has negatively impacted the Corporation Commission in the last election process. And apparently that's that 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 uh, horrible situation is going to continue. So from a consumer standpoint, from a utility rate payer standpoint, um, the uh, political cesspool at the Corporation Commission just gets deeper. Former legislative leader and political analyst Chris Hurstam. Chris, we thank you as always for your time. Always a pleasure, Steve. Still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk with Matthew Desmond about the impact of evictions on low-income housing areas and other communities. We'll also hear about Arizona's biosciences industry. And then later this hour, legendary trumpet player Herb Alpert. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Uptown Farmers Market, inspiring and educating home cooks and now gardeners. April classes include getting the buzz on bees and wickedly smart water harvesting. Class list at facebook.com slash uptowngrowersaz. This is KJZZ and you're listening to Here and Now. Be with us today at 1 for News Hour from the BBC. Well, if you're up in Flagstaff, we're seeing reports of light snow where it's 34 degrees right now. In Valley traffic on I-17 northbound, there's a crash blocking the right lane at Indian School Road. What's your favorite program on KJZZ? Tell us what it is by voting for your favorite show at KJZZ.org. Vote and be entered to win the weekly drawing. Look for your favorites on the right side of the page and share your favorite at KJZZ.org. We proudly recognize members of our Leadership Society, Joe Kerr and Alan and Diane Winston, for their support of the news and information you trust on KJZZ. To learn more about the Leadership Society, call 480-774-8257. It's mostly sunny and 61 degrees right now in Phoenix at 1120. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Big cities across the U.S., including Phoenix, are working hard to eliminate homelessness, in part by increasing low-income housing availability. But progress has been slow and some of the greater struggles are being exacerbated by the number of evictions happening around the country. Harvard Associate Professor Matthew Desmond met families who were evicted, saw others being evicted, and studied the data. All of that is part of his new book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. Desmond will be talking about the topic at ASU's Tempe campus one week from tomorrow, and he joins me now. Matt, even with the research you've done, was it even a surprise to you the impact of evictions? It was. When I started this book, I didn't think that eviction was so frequent and so consequential. You know, when you read accounts of evictions from the 1930s and 1940s, uh, you get a strong sense, uh, a strong impression 
they're rare and they're scandalous. They used to draw crowds. Uh, but times have changed, you know, and today uh, poor neighborhoods have grown uh, quite used to the rumble of moving trucks going through their streets and the early morning knocks on the door. The last national estimate we have told us that about renters in about 2.8 million uh, homes in America, I think they're going to be evicted soon. So this is something that's happening all across the country, and we've moved from a situation where eviction has become something that was rare and um, shocking to something that's happening with uh, shocking frequency. To what extent is this, um, are we seeing an emphasis in areas that are not just obviously low income, but low income and people of color as well? Eviction is happening all over the United States. It's happening in communities of color and white communities and immigrant communities. It's happening in cities on the coasts and in the middle of the country. Um, the face of the eviction epidemic is mothers with children. If you go into about any urban housing court in the country, you're going to see just rows and rows of moms with kids. Until recently, the eviction court in the South Bronx in New York City had a daycare because there were so many children, uh, so many, so many children uh, in that court. And so, um, and it is true that communities of color, low communities of color, are disproportionately affected by high housing costs. Um, in Milwaukee, the city that I studied, among renters, about one in five black women renters uh, reported being evicted sometime in her life, compared to one in 15 white women renters. So it's it's an incredible discrepancy. And the way I've been thinking about it is, if we know that a lot of low-income African-American men are being locked up in prison, uh, many low-income African-American women are being locked out. Matt, there are many huge communities, Phoenix, one of them, that has made a commitment to try to end homelessness, starting with veterans, but then moving on to a deeper sense. How would policymakers put that together to say, well, we're going to try to end homelessness, and yet here are people being essentially kicked out on the street if they don't have someone else to stay with because they're being evicted? The fundamental problem is the lack of affordable housing in our cities. We've reached a point in America where most low-income families, most poor families who are renters, spend at least half of their income on housing. And one in four of those families spend over 70% just on rent and utilities. So under those conditions, eviction and homelessness that follows eviction is not a result of irresponsibility. It's more an inevitability. And so I think unless we address the fact that housing is a direct and deep cause of poverty and instability in our cities, uh, we're not going to have a shot at addressing homelessness and community instability and all sorts of problems that are the wellspring of this kind of fundamental um, lack of shelter. Does it illustrate what we have seen and we've heard so much in this presidential campaign about income inequality? Uh, how much does that manifest itself in what you saw and what you wrote about? I'm really encouraged that we're having a public conversation about inequality in America today. It's a conversation that Republicans and Democrats are having. Uh, when you ask most politicians, what should we do about it? You know, and what should we do about the fact that America has more poverty and deeper poverty than any other rich democracy in the world? Most politicians will respond by saying something about jobs. You know, they'll say we need to incentivize work or raise wages. Um, and, you know, uh, no one can argue with those kind of um, recommendations. Jobs and, and good wages are incredibly important for addressing income inequality and poverty. But they're only part of the solution. Housing has to be um, at the top of our domestic agenda. And it's troubling that so many of our politicians aren't talking about the lack of affordable housing today. It's KJZZ's here and now. I'm Steve Goldstein. 
in Phoenix talking with Professor Matthew Desmond. His new book is called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. Matt, would we be surprised who's who's profiting from this? It's an important point, and my book works really hard to capture not only tenants' perspectives, but landlords' perspectives. I knew that if I wanted to understand the role that housing is playing in deepening poverty today, I had to understand what makes landlords tick, why they buy properties in some of the worst neighborhoods, why they evict you but not me. And so the book spends a lot of time with, a lot of time with landlords. And when I started this project, I wondered, why would you buy property in some of the poorest neighborhoods in the city? And when I ended it, I thought, why wouldn't you? Uh, there are profits to be made, and um, and that doesn't mean that a landlord's job is hard, is easy. It doesn't mean that it's um, it's illegal. But I think we should be just aware of the fact that there's a business model at the bottom of every market, unless we confront the fact that some people make a living, and in some cases a really really good living, off the poor. Um, our you know our solutions to end poverty are going to fall flat. Can you describe for us what it was like to go and see people evicted from their homes? What are some of the things that surprised you the most about that? When you're involved with with, uh, a group that does evictions, um, I mean, certainly I I don't want to cast aspersions on those people doing it, but it almost feels like you have to sort of go in with your eyes closed, turn your soul off for a day, because otherwise it's going to rip it apart. You do get used to it, and um, and that is in and of itself a... A troubling fact. It's heartbreaking. You know, it's it's disturbing. Um, I remember seeing children react to an eviction with nothing, no tears, no questions, no running to get a toy, just no reaction. Um, if eviction has become so commonplace in the lives of poor families that children are no longer seeing this violent, really stressful, overwhelming event as something to react to, I think that that's a wake-up call for us. I remember being on one eviction where um, we walked into the apartment and it was just kids. It was just kids. And um, the sheriff, um, you know, um, moved the kids out, piled their stuff on the sidewalk. What had happened was the mom had died and the kids had just gone on living in the house. And we were on to the next one and the next one. Um, Evictions happen all year round. And so I've been on evictions in Milwaukee when it was you know, 20 below, 30 below, zero with the wind chill. Um, that, that gets under your skin. You know, that has an effect. It had an effect on me. Uh, Evicted chronicles those moments, but it also chronicles moments of generosity and humor and spunk and brilliance in the face of, of hardship. Um, and I think that those moments, for me, were just as important to write about as the wrenching moment of eviction because they reminded me how gracefully people refuse to be reduced to their hardships. Matt, for people who have been through that a lot and for kids who've been through that a lot, did you get a feel for for what it would take to reverse a cycle like that? I talked about affordable housing, of course, but once once that hits you psychologically, um, again, whether you take it for granted or whether it causes you new pain every time, I, I'm at a loss as to how one would overcome that to to keep to keep having that open that open mind, that open heart and keep wanting to live in that sort of situation. We can do a lot more than what we're doing right now. I think most Americans still believe that the typical low-income family lives in public housing or benefits in some way from the government when it comes to um, getting stable, affordable housing. But the opposite is true. Only about one in four families that qualify for any kind of housing assistance 
in the United States receive anything. And uh, the waiting list for public housing in some of our biggest cities is not counted in years, it's counted in decades. So I think first, we as a country need to have a conversation about do we think that housing is a right? Do we think that stable, decent shelter is part of what it means to be an American? I think we have to answer yes, because without stable shelter, everything else falls apart. Matthew Desmond is an associate professor of the social sciences at Harvard University, co-director of the Justice and Poverty Project. He's also a distinguished alumnus of ASU. He'll be speaking on Thursday, April the 7th at Coor Hall at 4.30 p.m. about his book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. Matt, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The biosciences sector has been a significant part of Arizona's push to be competitive with communities like Silicon Valley, San Diego, and Boston, along with other parts of the world. That effort began in earnest a little more than a decade ago with the Arizona Biosciences Roadmap. This week, the Flynn Foundation released the latest progress report for the roadmap. The data was compiled by Techonomy Partners. Mitch Horowitz is Techonomy's principal and managing director and joins me now. Mitch, what sort of direction is Arizona going when it comes to risk capital and venture capital for biosciences? The biosciences um, has really uh, picked up quite a bit in in the uh, venture capital world. And so, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, obviously with the recession, it was tough everywhere. But in just the last two years, since, since 2013, they've actually gained about $45 $45 million in investment in Arizona by venture capital in some of the emerging companies. And and that's a pretty uh, big rise. So it's a 120% increase um, in that two-year period uh, nationally, um, even with the recovery, it only grew in the biosciences about 50%. So you can tell that what's happening here in Arizona is you're beginning to pick up momentum. And in fact, you're, um, you're gaining market share now. There's a long ways to go still, but it's a very good sign. How important is that to keeping the state competitive and keeping it from falling too far behind? The important thing about the biosciences is that it's an innovation-led industry. And, you know, for us, the biosciences in Arizona goes everywhere from um, research and development that industry is doing through, um, through medical devices and pharmaceuticals to the actual distribution of the products because there's very specialized distribution to keep the medicines properly accounted for and onto healthcare. And, and so when you put all of that sector together, what you realize is that they all share a focus around how biological information affects human health and can be applied to other kinds of sectors like that as well and industrial biotech. Um, so they require an innovation system, an ecosystem, and, and venture capital is a piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle. Um, ultimately, you know, one of the best ways to measure success is you know, jobs and good quality jobs. And that's coming in spades for Arizona. And it's not just an artifact of the short recovery that's underway. It actually dates back all the way to the beginning of the Arizona Biosciences Roadmap. The only part of your report that I saw that didn't seem to be positive, or at least trending in a positive direction, 
had to do with NIH research dollars. How far behind was Arizona over the last year or so, especially after having a number of years where things seem to be going well with those sorts of grants? Everybody gets the fact that research is the engine that, that really pulled biosciences ahead. Nationally, um, it's been hard times for NIH. You know, we had this big ramp up, um, doubling, um, but then the recession hit and fiscal realities took hold. And we kind of, as a country, took our foot off the pedal a little. Arizona really trended ahead of the country up until about 2010. And then it kind of trended down with the country. And in the last year that we can see from 2014 to 2015, the country had a little spike. I don't want to overemphasize it. And Arizona kind of didn't pick up with that spike. And so, you know, it's something to be watchful of. Um, again, we're thinking about this as a long-term, sustained economic driver for the state. I think on the industry side, the biosciences are really showing that in Arizona. But I don't know that you can sustain that without, without also having the research side grow as well. What are some steps to take to improve that situation? Ultimately, thinking about it over the course of the next five to 10 years, you really need to invest. And it's not just the public sector. It could be a public-private partnership. And there's some great examples nationally of how that can take place. And Arizona really needs to begin to think about, you know, what's the next generation? You know, what are we going to be doing here that's really going to allow us to do both take care and improve lives here in terms of um, new kinds of medical innovations, but also do well by doing those things in terms of advancing what could be, and it has you know, proven over the last nearly 15 years now as a major economic engine. So, you know, over different business cycles, over time, um, it's really, you know, you're really growing up here in the biosciences. And Mitch, Arizona's overall job scene, it has gotten better, certainly, but it's it just recently gained back all the jobs uh, that were lost because of the Great Recession. As good an industry, as a general industry, as the biosciences are, uh, the wages that are paid, as you mentioned, much higher than the average wage. But is there enough progress being made in Arizona to get enough of those jobs to really be a tide that lifts more boats? Sure. No, that's a great, I, I think that's a great question. So, you know, clearly you started at a lower base, um, but the growth going from 2012 has just been um, really something, I don't think it would be hyperbole to say spectacular in the sense that you have not only outgrown the private sector growth, whether it was through the economic expansion, expansion years of uh, uh, the early 2000s, whether it was, you know, in the hard times when Arizona's private sector really declined, you know, by more than 11% from uh, 2007 to 2009. It's, you know, sometimes hard to remember just how tough those times were. Total biosciences was up nearly 7% in jobs. And now through the recovery where, you know, now we're seeing you know, finally growth happening here in Arizona at nearly 8% in the private sector, but biosciences is up 15%. And um, so it's not only an important economic um, um, driver relative to your overall economy, but compared to the country, you're also outpacing growth. And so that really shows that the economics, the, the competitiveness of Arizona in the biosciences is growing, and those are very, very positive signs. What's the key to what we would call the next generation for biosciences in Arizona? You know, the first 10 years was really building 
like I said, you're at a low base and kind of getting it to a, a base that you have some critical mass. Now that critical mass is there, and if you don't keep investing together with the private sector and, and, and finding places where you could be really excellent, um, that's a concern. And, you know, the roadmap itself has identified a number of key areas um, for Arizona that um, looks like you can really make that excellence, whether it's in precision medicine, personalized medicine, whether it's in cancer, the neurosciences, um, you do a lot in Alzheimer's, whether it's in bioengineering, diagnostics, um, ad biotech is picking up here. But we've got to have some areas where you really stand out and make, and, and, and on the world scene, are seen as a national and world leader. Mitch Horowitz is Principal and Managing Director of Teconomy Partners. We've been talking about the latest report on Arizona's Biosciences Roadmap. Mitch, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. And still to come on here and now, we'll talk with Arizona Republic dining critic Dominic Armato. Almost one year on the job. What has he learned? What has he eaten? And then later on, legendary trumpet player Herb Alpert joins us. Stay tuned. KJZZ is supported by Scottsdale Center for the Performing Arts. Taps, tunes, and tall tales. Broadway legend Tommy Toon shares songs and stories from his 50 years in showbiz. Saturday, April 2nd, scottsdaleperformingarts.org. Good morning. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. In Valley traffic right now, if you're northbound on I-17, there's a crash blocking the right lane at Indian School Road. Well, we're looking for a high today in the valley of 70 degrees. That was our high yesterday as well, and that would put us about 10 degrees below normal for this day. Partly cloudy overnight lows in the low 50s, and then a bit of a warming trend over the next couple of days with mostly sunny skies and a high of 74 tomorrow, and then up to 81 on Friday. We've got NPRs here and now coming up at 12 today. Big businesses are speaking out against North Carolina's decision to eliminate discrimination protections for LGBT persons, and the ACLU is suing to overturn an Iowa law that prohibits felons from voting. Here and now from Boston starts at noon. Looking to grow your business? Become a KJZZ business member and expand your reach with a philanthropic donation to KJZZ. Your business will connect with community-minded professionals who value public radio. Visit businessmember.kjzz.org or call 480-774-8274. It's mostly sunny and 61 degrees in Phoenix at 1140. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. It was about a year ago when the Arizona Republic dramatically changed its food and dining section. Longtime critic Howard Seftel retired and food blogger Dominic Armato took over. Unlike Seftel, Armato wasn't going to be anonymous and would be an active presence on social media. So we decided to check in with him to see how the first year on the job has gone and what sort of feedback he's been getting. Now, Dominic, you were not a novice to the Valley restaurant scene. But since becoming a critic, how has that scene matched your expectations? The big irony that I have discovered thus far is that I actually eat a lot less well now than I did before I took the job. <laughs> because, because, you know, back, you know, when, I'm, when, when you're blogging, you have the luxury of only going to these places that you've heard are great and you've talked to friends and said, oh, you got to go check this place out. You know, then you can focus on those and only worry about those and only write about those. Um, but, you know, 
my 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 sphere of responsibility is significantly larger now than it used to be. So, you know, it's like I joke with people. They say, oh, it's great. You get to go eat all the food. It's like, well, yeah, but I also have to go eat all the food. So <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 great when you're going to a place that's fantastic and, you know, it's new and exciting and delicious. And then, and then there are other times where, you know, you go to a place and you're like, I got to come back here another three or four times. So, you know, it has its upsides and downsides, which is which is not to complain, because, I mean, this is a spectacularly fun job. I don't mean to I don't mean to put it in those kinds of terms. But um, but yeah, no, I tell people, I said, ironically, I actually eat less well now than I did uh, before I took the job. But, um, you know, it's just a matter of trying to be thorough and trying to get to as many places as I can. And, and it's and one of the difficulties, too, is that, um, you know, I used to work in some pretty, you know, geeky food nerd circles. And, you know, that was sort of, you know, my my tribe. And then and, and I could sort of stay focused there. And, you know, I had certain. I, you know, there, there's a certain uh, a certain language that we all speak and we're all conversant in, and I don't have to worry about that too much. And yeah. and you know, now obviously I have a much broader audience. You know, and and it is difficult. Um, you know, th- there are you know, if you're writing for Savour magazine, you know, there's there's an understanding that hey, your audience is 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 going to be pretty darn food savvy right from the get go, yeah. and you can make certain assumptions. You don't have to explain everything. And and now you know, it's it's hard trying to. I find it's difficult trying to cover that full spectrum. You know, I, I have to appeal on a certain level and at certain times to people who are very food savvy and really into, you know, finding this very esoteric stuff. And on the other hand, I've got to, you know, appeal and, uh, and, and, and inform people who, you know, certainly they enjoy going out to eat, but, you know, they're not as geeky about it as I am. And so, you know, I've got to, you know, help them a little bit, you know, help them to understand where this stuff is coming from. So it's, it's hard, not necessarily to address one or the other, but to hit, you know, the full spectrum of, uh, of food readers all at the same time. And that's, uh, that's definitely been one of the big challenges. Okay. So what sort of reader feedback have you gotten? Because one thing that stood out to me, maybe this was a week or so ago, um, was about the best so the best beef sandwich maybe in town, and people had said, oh, you know, you, you tried this one place, you didn't like it over and over again, and then, oh, well, maybe I went on a good day, and you actually did like it. I love this. I mean, the feedback has been, in general, it's been completely outstanding, and I and I just, I'm, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm constantly amazed by it. Um, but, but this was like a perfect example where I tell people, it's like, look, you know, yes, I know a lot about food. But I'm one guy, you know, I, I can't I can't eat at every single restaurant in town, no matter how hard I try. Um, and uh, and I did a, a story about uh, uh, for spring training about uh, finding Chicago style eats in Phoenix. And uh, I'm I'm from many, many years back, a huge Italian beef sandwich evangelist. It's like one of my great loves and, uh, you know, a little piece of home that I've carried with me. Um, and uh, after I, I published this piece, um, uh, I, I got probably about a dozen emails, people saying, you know, how could you not mention Luke's? You know, this is like the greatest Italian beef sandwich in town. And I'm getting ready to write all these people back and say, no, no, I've been there. I, I know I've been there. I've been there like six or seven times. And I just, you know, it's just it's OK. But I just didn't think it was that great. It's never it's always disappointed me a little bit. But uh, so I'm getting ready to write everybody back. And then I think, you know what? I'll give it one more try. I'll, I'll stop. By, I'll give it one more try. And I walked in, had by far the best Italian beef sandwich I have had since my favorite place closed down a couple of years ago here in Phoenix. And it was great. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to write a piece. You guys are totally right. You know, I, I don't know how, what, maybe I just had the worst luck. I don't know. Maybe they changed something. I have no idea, but you are absolutely correct. This, this beef sandwich is way better than the others I've had. And this totally should have been on the list. And, and to me, that's like, that's the crux of it. You know, that's the interaction that I want. You know, I don't want it to be all about, it's, I, <laughs> As much as I acknowledge the fact that, you know, I, I kind of I do the big personality thing, it's not about me. You know, it's not it's about the food. It's about, you know, trying to get the word out there and about trying to help people find this delicious stuff. So so for me, that was a perfect moment where it's like, OK, we're, we're working on this together. You know, I mean, yes, it's an Italian beef sandwich, but 
but it's an Italian beef sandwich, you know, and 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 it was a whole bunch of people who wrote me to tell me you totally missed this, and I, and a week later, it's like, yeah, you're totally right, I did. So I, I love that, and I, I hope there's going to be a whole lot more of that going forward. It's so. here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. That's the voice of Dominic Armato. He's the dining critic for the Arizona Republican AZ Central. Just a little bit shy of one year on the job. So I know that all signs point upward for the Phoenix dining scene. Yeah, that better restaurants, better chefs, more interesting stuff going on. Is that trajectory still the case for you? And if so, why? What are the factors causing that? You know, it is, but it's always, it, it's it's a it's a funny thing in this town. It's always, it's never easy. You know, I mean, there's never, I feel like there's never a point here where where it's like you 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 crest that hill and like then we're just man we're just rolling it that never that never happens you know I, I talk to other food geeks and other people who are into the who are into the restaurant scene and, and chefs and all that and it's always just like you just keep just keep inching that boulder forward you know trying to grow a little bit and do something a little bit more interesting and 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 a little bit different and uh, and it's and um, and it's always going forward, but but it's but it's but it's tricky because Phoenix. It's interesting. It's a it's a funny town because, you know, we're we're a huge city, but but the dining scene here doesn't really play like a huge city. I mean, it's uh, 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 what what does and doesn't succeed here um, is not as it's harder to be inventive and it's harder to go out on a limb in in Phoenix just from a business standpoint. I mean, we have tons of of chefs who would love to do some really unusual and different things and things you haven't seen in this town. But they have a hard time selling it. You know, it's like it doesn't do you any good if you can't if you can't make money selling it. So, so it's a uh, um, it's always a tricky conflict. And uh, and you know, and obviously part of what I'm trying to do is to try to, you know, I, I don't I don't want to just I don't want to just reflect it. I want to try to I want to try to 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 get the diners and get the chefs together and you know get these people learning from each other so that so that it can the scene can become as much as as it can be as much as you know I know I know that we can do here. So, so it's uh, it's you know just keep. Keep pushing the ball forward, you know. I keep moving it forward a little bit every day. So, one of the things we talked about not long after you started the job was the controversy, whether real or imagined, that your predecessor, longtime predecessor, no one really, the, the people in people really in town knew who he was, but you wouldn't see his face necessarily know who he was, and that was going to be a different dynamic with you taking over. Has that been pretty smooth? Were there any bumps along the way? Uh, no, it's been. Pre- I mean, you know, there are places that I'm sure I've been recognized, and and there are times where I'm pretty sure I've gotten away with it, but maybe I haven't. Um, but no, I mean, so far it's gone pretty smoothly. I mean, there are places where I know I've been recognized, and it certainly didn't help the review at all. You know, I mean, I it's, I, I so, you know, I, I feel like um, I feel like it's I, I feel like it's been I feel almost like a non-issue. I mean, I feel like there's you know there's there's a great hubbub about it, and and again, like I said, it's not. It's not unwarranted. I understand the concern, but I think uh, you know the reality of the situation is that it's really not a whole lot different. I mean, it may seem so from uh, from a presentation standpoint, but I think the reality of how it works in the end is that, from a practical standpoint, it's not a whole lot different from the way it was before. At least that's been my experience. Um, and uh, and you know, I, I talk to other people who go to these same restaurants. I talk to uh, you know readers will 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 write into me, and and the and the feedback has been has been you know almost without exception has been yeah that's 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 on that's how it is that's you know that was my experience as well. So, so um so we seem to be and I you know I've got a few tricks up my sleeve as well for you know network of spies and all that kind of stuff that you know can keep up the hush hush and all that. But you know it's it's I, I feel like it's working very well. So uh, so so far it's been been pretty smooth sailing. And you know we'll see. I'm sure there will I'm sure there will be bumps in the road. But uh, but so far it's been uh, been pretty smooth. So how close has this job been to? I know it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but to a 24/7 in the sense that I mean yeah hopefully you're sleeping. But I mean at the same time 
with whether you're taking the reader feedback or whether you're getting ready for the next restaurant or you're thinking about going to the restaurant for the third time, how much time is this? It is it is completely nonstop. And the good news is that I wasn't much of a sleeper before I took the job, so at least I was used to that already. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's one thing to, uh, to you know to spend the time writing and to spend the time laying the groundwork and to spend the time interviewing the people and to spend the time setting up the events. Um, but you know, it, it just just getting out and doing the eating, you know, and and it has to be very structured. You know, again, one of the adjustments that I've had to make is it's no longer it is never a question anymore of hey, where would I like to go tonight? It's always now a question of hey, what do I need to check out tonight? So so it's um. So it's very different, you know. I uh, and uh, I, I I don't get to all the places that I'd like, of course. But it's but it's 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 trying to make good decisions to cover the range that I need to cover and to get to the places that I have to get to, and then to carve out as much time as I can just for you know doing that crazy exploring and finding little nooks here and there that nobody's heard of. And uh, and and by the time you throw all that together, I mean it is. It is it is nonstop. I mean, you know, there was a friend who told me before I started, you realize this is going to be like a full time plus 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 job. Right. And I was like, yeah, I kind of know it. But it's one thing to know it. And it's another thing to to know it. And now I know it. And uh, and um, it's I mean, it's exciting. It is exciting. But it is a whole it is a whole different life. So uh, so I'm still making that adjustment on a personal level. But um, but it's fun. Arizona Republic and AZ Central dining critic Dominic Armato. Coming up on Friday night, he'll be hosting the first in a series of daring dining nights at Gertrude's of the Desert Botanical Gardens featuring chef Matthew Taylor. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The music of legendary trumpet player Herb Alpert is instantly recognizable, especially from his time as a hitmaker with the Tijuana Brass in the 1960s. Tomorrow, Alpert turns 81 years old. He and his wife, singer Lonnie Hall, will be in the Valley for three shows at the Musical Instrument Museum on Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. The concerts will focus on Alpert's most recent album, Come Fly With Me. Alpert joined me from his home in Southern California just a few minutes after doing his morning trumpet practice. Herb, your music still has a real cool sound to it that's easy to listen to. Does that come naturally to you? It is natural because I, I try really, really hard not to affect anything. I just want it to be, you know, come out naturally and express what I'm feeling. So uh, if it's cool, it's cool. Sometimes I get a little, you know, a rougher, but uh, on that particular cut, probably that whole album, yeah, it is kind of cool. I'm in a cool period of my life. Did art come easily to you? Is is that something where you're born with or you have to really work at it? I think it's a combination of both. You know, I'm, I'm um, 85% in the right side of my brain, so I paint. I've been painting for, you know, many, many, many years and sculpt and make music, and that's what I really love to do. It's a passion of mine. I just, you know, I'm, I'm one of those lucky guys that get to, and I get to follow my passion. Well, does the popularity matter to you? I mean, the fact that you have been so popular for so long, is that is this something you'd want to do regardless of how successful you've been? I, I didn't really go for that. You know, I was just going for making good records. I had, uh, you know, a lot of good people surrounding me, and uh, 
I had a big aha when I was working, uh, watching the great Sam Cooke in 1957. I was privy to all those records that he made and became friends with him. And he used to tell me, Herbie, people are just listening to a cold piece of wax, and it either makes it or it don't, you know. And I said, well, yeah, that's good. I like that. You know, he was he was he came from the gospel field, and he was just looking for feel. He was just it had to feel good, and that's. That's the records I try to make. I try to make uh, you know music that feels good to me. I feel if it feels good to me, then there's going to be X amount of people that might uh, you know respond to it as well. Have you felt the need to experiment over the years to to just try it? You know, you've worked with a lot of different artists. Obviously, you, you discovered some of them, but you also have worked with some. I think of some work you did with uh, I guess with Janet Jackson back in the '90s, and that's not someone people would naturally think you'd you'd be with. Is that something you still look for? You want to work with different people? It's exciting to work with creative people. You know, it's uh, the unknown. I like, you know, art is something that really strikes me hard. It's, it's a mystery. You know, what is that thing that, like, when you hear a record on the radio and you get goosebumps and you can't really identify it. What the heck is that? What are the What's that combination? Is it the melody? Is it the rhythm? Is it the singer? Is it, you know, or when you're listening to jazz and you're just, you hear a Miles Davis record and you say, Geez, I like that guy. I don't. Why do I like him so much? You know, you can't really pinpoint. You can't identify. I played with Louis Armstrong one uh, one night at a on a TV show, and Louis was um, he was magic. He, he he had something that was really uniquely special because his personality came right through the horn. Other than that. What I couldn't identify what I liked about him. I mean, I I liked the space between the notes. I liked the notes he chose. But you know, it's 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 in the mystery realm, and I, that goes for all the arts as well. You you walk in front of a great sculpture, and you and 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 it, and it touches you. Why? Hmm. Uh, what? The shape? The color? The you know? If you, if you stand in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and you try to analyze it, you're going to blow it. You won't you won't get it because. Art is a feel, and that's uh, the beauty part of it. Have you ever thought about what uh, it feels like to make music that, that you enjoy, but that others really love to know that people are listening to your music, and when they do, they're usually deriving pleasure from it? Well, it gives me pleasure to know that they're doing that, but, you know, the one that gets the most pleasure out of my music is me. <laughs> <laughs> in the old days, you know, you go in the studio and you record with musicians live, and uh, you make a record, and... Now it's uh, you know it's a completely different way of of making records and selling records and exposing. I mean, I did an album on whipped cream and other delights, but a rewhipped. It was a, mm. taking those songs and 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 doing variations on those songs. And the guy who had the idea said, "Why don't we get these great mixers around the country and have them, you know, work with you, mix the record in a different way, and put put some ad- other you know additives to it, and." put your trumpet on it so okay so i did that but i was these guys would send me a a file a musical file i would put my trumpet on it i would send them back just the trumpet i never met these guys i did an album with musicians i never met i mean they could have been in afghanistan and would have amounted to the same thing so many of your hits and what people know you for are for great instrumentals and it seems like these days, and even more so than it used to be, it's so much based on on the singer and that sound as opposed to instrumental. Do you think we're missing something by not having, where instrumental is almost sort of put away to the side of, well, if you like jazz, you can listen to instrumental, otherwise you won't. It seems like there used to be more mainstream pop we'd hear more instrumental. What do you think about that? 
Uh, I think you just hit the nail right directly on the head. I mean, it's one of the problems that instrumental artists are having these days. It's very pigeonholed. You know, you have, unless you have certain elements on the record, the radio is very stingy. That they're not willing to play it. So instrumental music is uh, kind of a lost art at the moment. It needs somebody to come come around and, uh, you know, shake it up like the Tijuana Brass did years ago. Right. Your music with the Tijuana Brass, especially without question, fits the word iconic, and it was so much fun to listen to. Could it have been as much fun making it as it was to listen to? Absolutely. I mean, I, I always felt if it's fun to play, it's going to be fun to listen to. That's the music that I try to make. You know, when I had the Lonely Ball, and this was before your time, I'm sure. This was 1962. That was the record that started A&M Records. And I had an opportunity. I could either make the, the Lonely Bull sideways and do variations on the Lonely Bull or, or keep trying to, you know, stretch out and, and do different things. And that's what I tried to do. Obviously, it, it was successful. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, Steve, that uh, luck and timing play such an important part in the success of an artist. You know, if you're there at the right time with the right song at the right moment, uh, it, it can break through. But if the timing's off, but you got the talent and everything else, is, it's not going to uh, fall in place as easily. You've been famous. You've been a much-admired talent and person for five decades at least. And you also seem to have enjoyed it. So I guess I wonder, as a lot of people don't seem to, could you explain a little bit how it feels to be that famous and at the same time enjoy your fame, feel like you've been lucky and blessed? Well, I've been lucky and blessed. I don't even think about the fame for a, a, a nanosecond. It's, it's not even an, a, an issue for me. I, it's, it's, not, it's not what I was striving for. You know, when kids come up to me and say, you know, what's the key to success? You know, I think... That one word, passion. Unless you're passionate about wanting to be a musician, wanting to be a dancer, a poet, a, a singer, whatever it is, you, you know, unless you're passionate about it, forget it. Because while you're sleeping, other people are practicing who want you know the very same thing you do. So don't do it for any other reasons. It's not about uh, you know trying to get the the prettiest girl in in school. It's about you know doing something that really gives you pleasure and. You know, I wake up in the morning all excited about, you know, sculpting and painting and, and actually practicing the horn. I'm I'm doing it, you know, I just put the horn down to, to, to talk to you and uh, getting ready to do these concerts. But while I, you know, practice, it's like... Uh, you never get to the place where you where you think you're you're finished. You know, Dizzy Gillespie was a good friend of mine, and Dizzy used to say, he said the the the, the closer I get, the farther it looks. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a favorite or two of yours of of the latest album that uh, that you'd like people to hear a little bit more of? You know, I did something that. Uh, George Harrison. That George Harrison wrote. What I try to do is play the lyric through the instrument, and just as a look, see. I mean, you can you can really uh, feel that in in uh, the way I play uh, something. The legendary Herb Alpert, he and his wife Lonnie Hall are going to be at the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix for three shows: April the third, fifth, and sixth. And Herb, a great honor for me to talk with you. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Steve. Good Have a good day, sir. You. Take care. Bye bye. You too. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producers Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. 
If you want to hear my conversations with Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton or with Matthew Desmond about evictions or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon, or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great afternoon. It's 12 o'clock.